is happening tonight, along with normal services for kids and students um, at 6 o'clock. Labor Day weekend is next weekend, and then the following weekend is homecoming. So our homecoming service is September 10th. We'll have normal Sunday school, and then we'll have worship, and then a lunch to follow. Uh, Kirk Richardson is going to be with us. He's going to be bringing our, our message that morning. Um, Kirk was here for several years, probably, what, eight to ten years ago at this point. Um, so we're excited to have him come and bring our message that morning. Uh, but if you have any questions about that, you can see Neil um, for any, any questions about that homecoming service September 10th. And September 3rd, next week, we won't have evening services because it's Labor Day. So the 3rd and the 10th, no Sunday evening services. One exciting thing that's happening in our community is the Heard County Community Choir. Um, this is the first year that they've done that. They're going to get together uh, anyone who's interested in being a part of a community choir for Heard County, and they're going to practice several times throughout the fall and then give a performance on December 3rd at the Heard County GPAC um, at 6 o'clock. So that starts tonight. Um, they're going to have practice at 4 o'clock at, at the GPAC. So for choir tonight, if you're in our choir, we encourage you to go be a part of that. That's where our choir will meet tonight um, at 4 o'clock at the Heard County GPAC. That'll be our choir practice for this evening. And if you have any questions about that, you can see Catherine, and she will point you in the right direction. This morning, as we prepare for worship, I want to ask Mr. Jerry if he would come forward, and he's going to read our call to worship. Good morning. I'm reading this morning out of the book of James, chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. But he gives greater grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. Father, we thank you for these words from James, serious words, Father, Words that tell us how, as uh, children of God, we are to see ourselves in relation to you. And, Father, how we are to uh, act in relation to you and others. Father, uh, very, very uh, humbling words, uh, and, and we're grateful for them. And we're grateful for the message, Father, that's going to come, that's going to help us understand even better what you've told us. We ask that you open our hearts and our minds and our ears uh, to what you have prepared for us, Father, and uh, let us leave this place uh, putting into practice the Word of God in our lives. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Good morning. If you'll stand this morning, we're going to begin worship with singing Heart of Worship. When the music 
music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth, that'll bless your much deeper within than the way things appear you're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you it's all about you Jesus I'm sorry Lord for It's all about you, Jesus. King of endless worth, no one could express how much you much deeper within than the way things appear you're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you it's all about you Jesus I'm sorry be seated.
If you'll stand together, we're going to sing together again. We're going to sing the old rugged cross. as we prepare our hearts for communion.
Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time of praise and worship. God, I, I enjoyed singing the old rugged cross, God. You did it all for us. God, for what you did at the cross, you paid our sins in full, God. And it's just by faith that we hear you, God. I just want to tell you I love you and I praise your name. And I pray that we would uh, hear what you have to say this morning, God. And we would take it to our hearts and minds and take it out into the world, Lord, and, and be like you. Uh, and I pray that if there's somebody here that new to the church or never heard the gospel today, I pray today would be the day that they'd, they'd hear the truth and come to you and be saved. These things I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. As the children leave for Children's Church, we're grateful for Bryson and the volunteers in that ministry. The rest of us, please turn to Isaiah chapter 22. Uh, week 6 in the book of Isaiah, if you're new to us, uh, my plan is to preach the mountain peaks of Isaiah and his prophecy until Advent, uh, which will be here before we know it, of course. And so this morning we're in chapter 22. I will read verses 1 through 14. Uh, we find ourselves this morning in the valley of vision, the valley of vision. So where earlier we were on the mountain peaks, uh, from which you can see pretty well, unless it's a cloudy, foggy day, uh, today we're in a valley. And what we need to remember is that sometimes God speaks most clearly and plainly in the valley. It was C.S. Lewis who said that God... Uh, shouts, or rather whispers, let me get it right, whispers in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pains. I thought of that this week as I prepared this because there are judgments coming from Isaiah. Last week we were in chapter 14. Through verse 21, judgment pronounced against Moab. Damascus, Ethiopia, Egypt, Babylon, Edom, Arabia. If you've been doing the weekly readings that we've assigned in Isaiah, you may already know this. If not, now's the time for God's people in Jerusalem. So that's different. Uh, God's people at times may think to themselves, that's the world. They're under judgment. When they sin, they face consequences. When they disobey God, they are under judgment. But God holds His people to even higher accountability and responsibility because of our awareness and our revelation and our knowledge. So now we're in a valley. God speak to us through Isaiah in the valley. So chapter 22, verse 1. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. The valley of vision. What is the matter with you now that you have all gone up to the housetops? You who were full of noise, you boisterous town, you exultant city, your slain were not slain with the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your rulers have fled together and have been captured without the bow. 
All of you who were found were taken captive together, though they had fled far away. Therefore, I say, Isaiah is speaking personally here, Turn your eyes away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of panic, subjugation, and confusion in the valley of vision. A breaking down of walls, a crying to the mountain. Elam took up the quiver with the chariots, infantry, and horsemen. And Kerr uncovered the shield. Then your choicest valleys. If you're keeping score, that's the third time he's referenced the valleys. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots. The horsemen took up fixed positions at the gate. And he removed the defense of Judah. In that day... You depended on the weapons of the house of the forest. And you saw that the breaches in the wall of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool. And you counted the houses of Jerusalem. You tore down houses to fortify the wall. So they're scrambling with all of their energy and all of their efforts to prepare for this invasion. They even... Tore houses down to fortify the walls. And you made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool. But you did not depend on him who made it. Nor did you take into consideration him who planned it long ago. Therefore, verse 12, In that day the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head, and to wearing sackcloth. Instead, there is gaiety and gladness, and killing of cattle, slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat, and drinking of wine, saying, quote, Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we may die. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. But... The Lord of hosts revealed himself to me, Isaiah is saying, Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. We'll stop there. May God add his blessings to the reading of his word. And may God, through his word, prepare us for communion, which reminds us that there is forgiveness and there is atonement through the blood of Christ. Father, we are grateful to gather with you under your word this morning just to hear Isaiah and what he saw in the valley. Lord, may it move us to repentance. May it move us to faith. May it move us to cling to the old rugged cross for we too are under judgment. But Father, you have shown us the way of forgiveness, the way of salvation, the way of hope. And the way to properly rejoice and properly feast. Not out of despair, but out of hope and joy. Remind us, God, that this table before us today uh, reminds us that there will come a day of joy and feasting 
in the new heaven and the new earth that no party on earth, no celebration on earth could ever compare to what's in store for God's people. That's a lot, Lord. May we take it in. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the valley of vision, what does Isaiah see? Normally in a valley it's very difficult to see. But if God is revealing truth to and through his prophet, then it becomes crystal clear. The valley of vision refers to the area around Jerusalem. So this is a judgment upon God, God's people in God's city. And what I want us to notice is how Isaiah, resp- how Isaiah responds appropriately in contrast to how God's people respond and what you and I can learn from that. So we'll go ahead and, and move into the text. In verses 1 through 4, uh, if you're following and, and taking notes, I know some of you get notes in advance through email, uh, but here we go. Number 1, we have first Isaiah sees and has a question for reflection. Verses 1 through 4, we have a question for reflection. Now, this is an interesting introduction. Doesn't seem like a great conversation starter, but in verse 1, he basically asks God's people, what is the matter with you now? (laughs) Right? Man, you have heard that one, and you have... Ask that one. What's the matter with you? I think literally the Hebrew actually puts it like this. What's with you? And so anytime that question is proposed to us, that is a very personal question. It is a very penetrating question. And at times it can be a very infuriating question. What's the matter with you? Now, I'm not sure that that's the tone that Isaiah uses, but that's the tone that I imagine that he uses because this question for reflection is to draw out of them what is wrong with them. And what's wrong with them is their lack of repentance and faith during a time of calamity. If you got the gist of the passage, they're celebrating and rejoicing. And the war has just started. There's no victory yet. There's there's no time for celebrating. What are you guys doing over there goofing off on the sidelines and the game just started? (laughs) Put him into coach's mode here. What are y'all doing over there? Spend some time on the sidelines here. And co- what, what are you doing over there? There's a game going on here. So Isaiah, as a prophet, asks questions and gives vision and revelation from God to let them know you're being blind and ignorant and arrogant and foolish. You're celebrating, but this is not a time to celebrate. This is a time of repentance and turning to God. It also reminded me that the very first question in the Bible, do you know the very first question in the Bible? Adam, where are you? That wasn't a question 
for God's information. That was a question for Adam's personal diagnosis. When Isaiah asks, what's up with you? He's wanting them to do some self-contemplation. Some self-inventory. And did you know that every time we take communion and the Lord's Supper, Paul says to every single one of us, let every man, let every woman examine yourselves. Now the other thing I want to point out in passing is that in Isaiah 22.4, Isaiah gives us his personal heart which reflects the gravity of the situation. Look at verse 4. Verses 1, 2, and 3, he's like, what are y'all doing? Are y'all going up onto the housetops to watch the rest of the war? Are you going up on the housetop for revelry? What are you doing? This city was full of noise. It was boisterous. It was exultant. Look, you had your leadership ran away and fled like, like cowards. They didn't die by the sword. They didn't die courageously. Uh, some commentators see this as a blockade. And so people aren't actually dying with the sword. They're dying for uh, starvation and, and other reasons. We, we just aren't sure. We don't know everything uh, about everything that Isaiah is saying in this. But what we do know is how Isaiah felt. Look at verse 4. Turn your eyes away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. Isaiah has the right heart concerning the situation, and it is weeping and sorrow and grief because his heart aligns with God's heart over the tragedy of what's taking place. God is judging his people because of their own rebellion and sin. Isaiah says, don't look at me. I need to cry. It's difficult to watch a grown man cry, but real men do cry. And there are some movies that I've been in where I'm hoping that the, the family members to my left can't see me. <laughs> Is dad crying during this movie? <laughs> Sometimes, yes. Sometimes it's appropriate. At this particular time, it is very appropriate. Isaiah's heart reflects the heart of God while his people are out in left field, not fully grasping the gravity of the situation. So first, and I've got to move on. Number one, a question for reflection is a question for every single one of us. Do we mourn the things that God mourns? Do we care about the things that God cares about? Are we taking them most seriously as God takes them most seriously? Or do we have some improper, inappropriate view of life and sin and tragedy and judgment, so forth and so on? In verses 5 through 8, a day of reckoning, a day of reckoning. Isaiah feels the way that he feels. He, he, he's weeping. He says, turn away I need moment to, to, to grieve over the city of Jerusalem. Look at verse 5. For the Lord God of hosts has a day. 
And I don't like the things at the second half of verse 5. Or in the second half of verse 5. Panic, subjugation, and confusion. Those are not things we order from the menu on a daily basis willingly. But God has a day of reckoning in the valley of vision. And this is what's going to happen. There's going to be a breaking down of walls. There's going to be a crying to the mountain. Elam's going to take up the quiver. The chariots, the infantry, the horsemen. Kerr's going to uncover the shield. And those choice valleys that they were so grateful for and so proud of, instead of being filled with agricultural benefits and food, they're going to be full of chariots. Horsemen are going to take up fixed positions at the gate. And he, and in verse 8, that's capital H, God is doing this. He removed the defense of Judah. What in the world is going on? God has sovereign plans of judgment on his people because of their rebellion and sin. God has a day of reckoning. It is appointed unto man once to die and after this to judgment. And, and, and that is what is ahead for the future of every person, of every generation. But here we have it in, 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 in tight, uh, clear confines within the city of Jerusalem. In the valley of vision, God is going to frustrate their plans because his plans can never be frustrated. And God through Isaiah is calling people to align their minds and their hearts and their will with God's plan and what He's doing, but they're going off on their own way as sinners tend to do. So He has a day of panic, subjugation, confusion, and frustration for God's people. Why in the world would God allow warlike people to fill the valley? Why are His plans His plans? This is His strange work. And in a life, in a culture, in a society where there's so much frustration, there's so much confusion, there's so much chaos, there's so much panic, there's so much, uh, what's this other word here? Subjugation. We've got our fair share of frustration. Frustrated with my job. Frustrated with my country. Frustrated with my spouse. Frustrated with my traffic. Frustrated with everything. Why so much frustration? The city of Edinburgh, Scotland has a motto, a seal for the whole city. Without the Lord, frustration. Unless the Lord builds a house, they build it in vain. God's plans will never be frustrated. Therefore, you and I must attach ourselves to a plan that can never be frustrated. And that is God's sovereign plan for the universe, for humanity, and for you and me. Now, we'll get to what that plan is in just a moment. But God appoints frustration and panic and chaos For a divine reason. This is his strange work. So let's move on. This is a test of reliance. A test of reliance. Through this judgment, God is testing them, not for his information again, but for theirs, to to reveal and expose to them what they're relying on. 
And what they were relying on is what you and I often rely on, ourselves. Our own thoughts, our own ideas, our own devices, our own... Hey, I'll think of something. I'll do something. I'll come up with with something uh, in this day of crisis. So so look at, walk with me through this in, in 8b. A verse can have an A and a B, and this verse A has a B. Uh, Look at the second half of this. In that day, okay, walk with me through this. You depended on the weapons of the house of the forest. They had this this armory that was built that was stocked full of weapons. They depended on their weapons. You saw that the breaches in the wall of the city of David were many. Hey, we've got all these cracks in the walls. They, They saw that. And so they did something about it. They collected the waters of the lower pool. They counted the houses of Jerusalem. They tore down houses for the wall. And you're like, you already read this once. I'm reading it again for emphasis. Uh, You made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool, but you did not, verse 11. So look, look, look at this. You saw, you collected, you counted, you tore down, you made, you did everything in the world but what you should have done first. They tried everything that they could except what? Dependence on God. Look at verse 11. But you did not depend on Him who made it, nor did you take into consideration Him who planned it long ago. Again, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Imagine having everything in your life completely taken care of and squared away. But you're totally neglecting the God who made you. We are created for His pleasure, in His glory, in His honor. They did everything in the book, but they did not depend on God who made it. What is it? And they didn't consider him who planned it long ago. What is it? Is it this particular judgment that's taking place on Jerusalem in the valley of of the vision? Or is it everything in existence? Well, the answer particularly is God planned this judgment for a reason so that you would turn from yourself and depend upon him rather than your works and your action and your energy and your emotion. Or is it everything that that exists? Well, of course, we know that's true too. Let's not stand in judgment over the people of Jerusalem. Because how many times has your knee-jerk reaction been? I'll think of something. I'll try something. I'll do anything but... In prayer, surrender my life totally to God and His grace... Seek first Him and His kingdom, and everything else be added unto me. This is essentially about a people putting God after everything else, and essentially forgetting God. You know what the essence of sin is? The essence of sin is to forget God. And that's exactly what they were doing. But God will not be mocked. God will not be trifled with. All of our actions and all of our works are vain and empty and useless and even offensive 
if we're going on about our lives and not considering Him and depending on Him. So this is a test of reliance. Every day of my life is a test of reliance. Am I trusting and relying on me? Or am I trusting and relying on Him? God sees the difference. God knows the human heart. He knows what our loves are. He knows what we're riding with, what we're counting on, what we're leaning on, what we're depending on. And I've got to move on. Number four, if you're still with me. There's last of all a call to repentance. A call to repentance. Hey, if this test of judgment and these warlike people coming into town... If that, if that had a purpose, here it is. I'm picking up in verse 12. Therefore, in that day, the Lord, of God, Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, wailing, shaving the head, which was a sign of repentance, and wearing sackcloth. In other words, just th- this was a trial run. This was a scrimmage. This was a test. This was a scenario. This was, um, what do you call those things? A, a simulator, so to speak, though it was real. But this moment of crisis, God created a crisis. And this moment of crisis was to lead them to repentance. To break them. From self-importance and self-dependency and pride to trust completely and cast themselves completely upon God and His sovereignty and His mercy. But they didn't break. In fact, they did the opposite of repentance. They basically said, okay, we've fortified the walls. We've moved the water around. We've done all we can do. Let's party. (laughs) That's exactly what they do. The invaders are coming. And instead of in their heart of hearts repenting and breaking and crying out to God with mercy, they're like, let's move on with our lives and let's throw a party. Let's eat, drink, and be merry for what? Tomorrow we die. You've heard that before. Uh, The Dave Matthews Band wasn't the first group to ever speak those words. Oh, this is a philosophy of man from long ago. And Isaiah went first. In fact, God's people went first. And they said, look, if this is all there is, then we better get it while we can get it. And we better enjoy it while we can enjoy it. Instead of repenting and turning to God, they turned to themselves. Look at at what they did. They killed the cattle. Okay? They slaughtered the sheep. This is excess. This is license. This is hedonism. Man, they had the time of their lives when an invasion brought by God is coming. What an inappropriate and foolish and callous response. So Isaiah in verse 14 shouts the warning. And he says, the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me. 
Verse 14, if you're still with me. This iniquity shall not be forgiven until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. That's heavy. That's severe. What does it mean? It means if life and the pressure and the difficulty and the ins and the outs, everything that's going on never drives you to repentance and faith in Christ, then there is no forgiveness anywhere else. If your mode and mentality is that this is my life and this is all that there is, and I'm going to eat, drink, and be married for tomorrow we die, then you've essentially shut the door on the only saving grace that there is. So before we take communion, I want to preach to you the good news. Enough of judgment? Enough of war? No, not enough. Because God has a sovereign intention in His mercy. He allows you and I to feel through life a a crisis caused by His grace, mercy, and love that will break us and send us clinging to the cross for not only salvation, but the right kind of partying and the right kind of feasting. God is not opposed to pleasure and fun. In fact, He made pleasure and fun. But unless you let John the Baptist drive you to repentance and faith in Christ, you will never know the eternal, healthy, joyful eating, drinking, and being merry that God's people enjoy, not out of despair and depression and meaninglessness, but out of meaning and hope and joy and eternity. And there's a, there's a world of difference. But let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. I've got to show you this before we take communion. Or you won't know how the Apostle Paul connected eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, which he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 22. And I'll be honest, that verse jumped out at me as I read through Isaiah. And I said, wait a second, that verse is in the New Testament. I'm preaching Isaiah 22. As well as the the other context is there. So, do you know what 1 Corinthians 15 is about? It's about the resurrection. It's about the fact that the Apostle Paul was stubborn and cruel and murderous. The chief of sinners, but God met him on the road to Damascus in the risen Christ. And he said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul, you keep being stubborn, you keep being selfish, you keep living life while you... And you're like like a, a mule or a horse that's kicking against... You're just harming yourself. So Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus and reveals His glory and His grace. So Paul's preaching to the Corinthians the fact that Jesus Christ is is really risen. He died for us as a sacrifice of atonement so that we can be forgiven. Let's be honest, none of us have lived a perfect life of repentance. None of us have perfectly depended on God as Isaiah calls us to do. Paul knew this better than anyone. 
So you're probably in 1 Corinthians 15 already. Let me find it. In verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 15, let's work this out. Actually, I want to read verse 30. Verse 29 is a sermon in itself, and I'll only confuse you. Let's go to verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? In other words, why am I living life with danger and courage and faith and suffering? I could go to the beach all the time and eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, but that's not what I'm doing. I am in danger every hour. I could lay back, take it easy the rest of my life, but he's not. Verse 31, I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, I die every day. Every day I die. Every day I give my life away for Christ and his kingdom. Then he says in verse 32, if all this is on the human level, if this is just from human motives, I fought wild beasts at Ephesus. What, what does that profit me? Then he says this, here's our statement. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow what? We die. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought. Stop sinning. Some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to you. Here's what he's saying. If Christ is not risen from the dead, then what you should do is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. If this life is all there is then that's the right mentality. That's the right perspective. But what is Paul saying? This life is not all there is. Everything has meaning. Everything has significance. So at the end of this chapter, he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Here's why we party. Here's why we celebrate. And it'll go through all of eternity. Feasting with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a victory through Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, hey, don't despair. Don't give up. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So we'll close with that. Isaiah's prophecy drives us to Christ. Isaiah's prophecy says this. We should weep and we should lament over God's judgment. We should grieve our sin. But once we grieve our sin and run to Christ, we should rejoice and celebrate and live with meaning and hope every day. For tomorrow we don't die. Tomorrow we... What? We live. After death. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Jesus went into Jerusalem. Jesus died in Jerusalem. Jesus rose from, quote, the valley of vision that is death victoriously over the grave. And communion reminds us regularly of our need to grieve our sin, to grieve our rebellion, but to run to Jesus by faith and rejoice and be lifted because there is forgiveness, there is atonement, there is eternal life. This is his meal that we celebrate 
and remember. Father, thank you this morning. There's so much more in Isaiah. But in our heart of hearts, we know, we know whether we are truly clinging to Christ by faith and surrender or whether we are still wrestling with our own works, our own actions, our own devices. But I thank you for Jesus because apart from his righteousness, I could never be saved. Apart from his atonement, I could never be forgiven. The mere fact that there is forgiveness and there is atonement is such amazing grace. So when we do feel crisis, when we do feel chaos and subjugation, may we recognize your sovereignty and may we allow that to break us and humble us to lean and rely fully upon Jesus and his broken body and his shed blood. Help us to have a heart like Isaiah's and a heart like Christ's that grieves appropriately, but then rises and rejoices appropriately as well in the, the grace and the power of forgiveness and eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, at this point, if our deacons would come forward, both active and inactive, um, Let's serve our congregation the meal that Christ gave as an ordinance for us to continue to be where we ought to be in our heart of hearts, both mourning and celebrating, both weeping and rejoicing. Weeping because of our sin, rejoicing because of our forgiveness. And both of those are here uh, in this in this table. So Todd Hanley, would you pray for us before we take communion? Amen.
a couple of chapters earlier from where we were in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the Corinthians were having some of the same issues with selfishness um, and misunderstanding and misapplying the way this meal was to be celebrated. So Paul corrects that with these instructions. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And they did eat. Amen. Thanks for the body and the sacrifice of Christ, which is our basis of forgiveness, atonement, and righteousness. In the same way, he took the cup.
Jesus took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And they did drink. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's stand and sing Room at the Cross for you, number 487, as our hymn of invitation. What a wonderful, gracious good news we have to proclaim through the cross of Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank y'all so much for being with us in worship today. Just to review, Bryson said at four, at the GPAC in Franklin, the choir's practicing, getting ready for a Christmas community choir practice. So um, I'm sure they would take some new members if you want to jump in and prepare for that. That's taking place the first Sunday night in December in Franklin. Um, what else did we say? Deacon's meeting at six, conference at seven, children and youth are normal. There you go. That's our opportunities for service this evening. Hope you all have a great afternoon with your family. Catherine, will you please close?
Let's sing the doxology together this morning. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Y'all have a great week.